This episode of Myth Take is being brought to you by Our Voices in Classics. Our Voices in Classics is a not-for-profit organization that proactively seeks to amplify and uplift the voices of students and scholars of all levels whom the field of classics has traditionally marginalized, ignored, or silenced. Visit ourvoicesinclassics.com for more information or find the link in our show notes. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. And good night, maybe. <laughs> Welcome to Myth Take, a fresh take on ancient myth. Ancient myth. I'm your host, Allison Innes. And I'm Darren Sundstrom. And we have a very special episode of Myth Take today. We're doing something a little bit different from, quite different actually, from our usual um, analyzing myth or talking about heroes specifically. We are giving this episode over to talk about important issues in race and classics. The Black Lives Matter movement has gained a lot of momentum recently, along with hashtags like shut down academia, black in the ivory and strike for black lives that highlight the experiences of people of color, especially black people in academia. So Darren and I recognize our privilege as white people working in the field, the very white field of classics. We wanted to do something to push back against some of the racism in our field, both in ways that our topic gets used for white supremacy ideas. There are lots of scholars and podcasters as well already working on the on the topic of race and ethnicity in classics. So we're providing a whole bunch of links in our show notes. And those include things like Scott Lapisto's Itinera podcast with his interview with Jackie Murray, which is really well worth a listen. Rebecca Feudal Kennedy and Sarah Bond have also written a lot about race and classics. And friends of the show, Ryan Stitt on the history of ancient Greece has done an episode on race and ethnicity. Avon and Mark from The Unless Knot have also taken on the topic. So in wanting to make our little platform available to people of color, um, John Bracey got in touch with us through through my Twitter call, and he's known as Magister Bracey on Twitter. He's a Latin teacher in Massachusetts, teaching Latin using the comprehensible input technique. He has an MA in classics from Boston College, and in 2016, he was named Latin Teacher of the Year by the Massachusetts Foreign Language Association. He's written in Edelon about his experiences trying to get hired as a Black Latin teacher, and he's also written about why students of color don't take Latin. So thank you very much for joining us today, John. Hey, thanks for having me. So we get through that long introduction. <laughs> hey, not, not too long. I'll take it. <laughs> well, there are important things to be said, right? So exactly. we're going to like, recognize the work that's already been done in the field and um, kind of where we're situating our, our episode. So I'm really curious in reading through your blog and some of what you've written about this comprehensible input approach to language and to teaching Latin. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I can give you the, the broad strokes of it. So comprehensible input is, um, it's a theory um, that, was, that was originated by Dr. Stephen Krashen, the, uh, the famous uh, linguist and second language acquisition uh, scholar, as it were. And the theory that is behind it is the idea that human beings acquire language in one way and in one way only. And that is when we hear things 
and or read things that we understand. That is the underpinning um, hypothesis. So the idea is that if I were to speak to my students in Latin, making sure that every single person understood what I was saying by stopping repeatedly, writing words in English and Latin on the board, doing everything I can to make sure that they understand what I'm saying, that then every single person will acquire Latin and everyone will make progress. Everyone will make progress. That sounds quite different from the way that I learned Latin and Greek. <laughs> oh, mine too. That's exactly <laughs> the opposite of how I learned. Um, for those of, of our listeners who maybe haven't studied the languages, the approach um, that I think is, I would say is fairly common is that kind of grammar first, right? Memorizing paradigms and working with really limited vocabulary, right? Yeah, actually, the uh, yeah the dominant paradigm is what gets referred to as the um, the grammar translation approach, which is really at its core um, a behaviorist approach that believes that languages are acquired the same way that you would acquire something like learning how to shoot a basketball or to play an instrument. That it's a physical behavior, and thus the way that you acquire a language is by memorizing all the rules, trying to apply them getting corrected, and then that negative reinforcement is supposed to encourage you then to get it right. But the, yeah, the result is largely just memorizing huge chunks of just randomness, only to forget them pretty much the moment you stop. Now, you're using this technique with grade seven and eight students, right? And sometimes high school students? Well, yeah, actually, I spent about eight years teaching primarily middle school, and I've been teaching um, exclusively high school for the past couple of years. And um, how do you find students respond to, to this method then? So I find that the response ultimately is very positive. Now, I'd say it depends on how they're introduced to it. So when you're trying to transition students who are used to the very traditional approach, very much the grammar approach, and they've been finding um, success as students that way, like they've been getting good grades and they've been feeling a sense of accomplishment because of that, I find that those students um, have the hardest time transitioning. But other than that, um, that group of students, the overwhelming majority respond positively. And for any students that I get for the first time who have never taken a language before or have never taken Latin before specifically, uh, the response from what I've seen has been extremely positive. And the result is typically that the program that I uh, use this in, they end up growing. So do you think it's a method that could be used or I don't know if it is being used at a post-secondary level? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the entire thing, right? The whole thing boils down to just one simple theory, right? That there's just one way that people learn languages. There's a number of different ways to get people that comprehensible input, those messages that they understand. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. There's ways to gear to all sorts of audiences and all sorts of age levels. So it's not like a prescribed set of individual activities that one has to do. It's just that fundamental theory 
And I think not only can it be applied at the uh, post-secondary level at universities and colleges, I think it, sh it needs to, it needs to happen for the field to survive. Um, Darren, this ties in with something that you were saying to me just before the, before the interview. Well, yeah, um, as I was reading John's articles, I kept thinking about the, you know, the grammar translation approach and the traditional, you know, method for language acquisition. And my, my, my background is in education and metacognition. And any, anyone who has any sort of passing familiarity with skills-based approach or acquisition knows that that behavioral model that John talked about is, is kind of not... <laughs> not a good model for language acquisition and that there are other methods in order to acquire that are more reasonable, more logical, more understandable, and more applicable. And I think that um, when I was reading those articles, I kept thinking that many of the things that John is dealing with are, in a broader sense, the types of things that we should be addressing in the secondary uh, classroom as far as languages are concerned and then even more generally in classics about how to get people to not be sort of uh, so hung up on the on the perfect right um, you're talking about proficiency rather than perfection and and that's just something that even in my experience you know it's always been as far as Latin and Greek is concerned it's about uh, you know perfection got to get it right got to get it right drill just keep going at it but and when we look at young children, they don't learn language that way, <laughs> right? They have a very different way of uh, acquiring uh, the skills in order to communicate. So I thought that what, what John was doing was, a, was an essential quality, uh, not only to address the disparity in classrooms as far as um, accessibility is concerned, as far as race is concerned, but opening up the opening up the field of classics to a wider audience in an, in an era where a time in which classics as a field finds itself diminishing and walling itself off even more. So those are some things that came to mind in my my reading of it. Nice. If I could, yeah. I mean, that's I'm I'm glad that you got that out of it. That, that's exactly what I was going for. I mean, it's it's. It's funny to say, I mean, you're someone who's an expert in, uh, in education. It's funny to have to say a lot of these things out loud. That's right. Because they, see, they seem like they should be pretty obvious. Like, I mean, have you ever met somebody before? <laughs> have you met a child or like an adult? They're like, it's like, I'll tell you the, the one audience that is never resistant to, to this approach in the classroom that I found, it's never, um, it's never parents, it's never regular people. It's yeah. where I explain this to them or whatever. They're like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, like, yeah, like I took language. I don't know anything. This was <laughs> what happened. And the result is nothing. I know nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right. So to the whole rest of the world, this makes no sense. But to the few people for whom this does make sense, every single one of them has become a language teacher. And the ones that couldn't even stomach the parts of it that did make sense, they all went into the field of classics. Mm. That's surprising. Yeah. Why, what, um, it, do you have any thoughts on why there's such, it seems to be such a big difference between how language is taught in classics and how language is taught, like other kinds of languages are taught? Like we don't, 
I mean, I certainly didn't when I was starting to learn French, sit down and start to memorize stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's, it's the, um, so I think what the explanation is, is, I mean, in modern language, I mean, to be fair, modern language um, um, pedagogy can have its own set of problems as well mm-hmm. that are that are sort of less extreme versions, sometimes less extreme versions of what Latin goes through. But I think it's the fundamental misunderstanding of what languages are and how they work. So the way I describe it is sort of like, right, so like if I gave you a slice of pizza and I gave you an apple, a mm-hmm. pizza is very different from an apple, yes? Mm-hmm. Both are food, right? Mm-hmm. Which one of them would you smash into your forehead? <laughs> Not the apple. <laughs> Not the apple. And you could smash the pizza in your forehead, but which is still probably be pretty hungry afterwards. Yeah. Probably, probably, right? It wouldn't but hurt as much. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think that's the difference is that like, is that we're thinking about them as if like one you eat and the other one you just smash into your forehead and hope something happens. They're, they're not fundamentally different creatures. So whether it's French, Latin, Klingon, it doesn't matter what it is. Like whatever language it is, your brain doesn't distinguish. There isn't like, well, that's Latin. Let's put that in that category. Oh, that's French. We're putting that over here. No, your brain makes no distinction between the two. A language is a language. Mm. And it's interesting to like, and I should preface this, that I am somebody who struggled with the languages. I'll be um, learning Greek and Latin. Um, I, for various reasons, I'm not very good with memorization. Um, And I found through my academic journey that people kind of sorted themselves in, in, within classics into kind of two groups, like people who were good with the languages and then everybody else. (laughs) And, and there was often this idea whether it was spoken or not, that being a classicist, a core part of being a classicist is being good with the language. And so then the language really becomes a barrier um, to delving into other issues. Yeah, I, I want to add to that too, Alison. That's been my experience. I, I would echo that as well. So you know, competency with the languages has always been a gateway to the ground floor entry into classics. And if you're going to throw up your first hurdle right there, well, then the upper floors are already cut off for the majority of other people anyways. It's it's elitist and it's like uh, John was saying, you know, it's like uh, for the smart kids or the advantaged students, right? This uh, self-selected group. Oh, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And to even take that to the next level, I mean, it's it's kind of like a bait and switch sort of like it's a lot of people will come into the field with a desire to study something. There's something about the actual ancient world they want to know about or to write about or to delve into more deeply. And the promise much like a, uh, I don't know, much like a pyramid scheme or like a, or like a, like a, any sort of multi-level kind of marketing scam, it becomes like, Oh yeah. Yeah. So you're interested in, um, in, in, women in poetry, like women authors in Latin, right? Awesome. Okay. So, but first to get there, obviously you got to take, uh, you got, you got to memorize uh, a bunch of charts and then like, okay, I memorized the charts. Okay. Now you got to spend another year memorizing some charts. And then you got to spend another year memorizing some charts and then another year. And then we're almost there, but first you got to go to grad school to memorize some more charts and you got to memorize the charts. And then you got to translate the things to make sure that you did memorize the chart and you're applying the chart. And then by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, so 
are we going to talk about this stuff at all? Like, it's like, it's like literally like you went to like a museum and you only talked about the, like the, I don't know, you talked about like the, the woodworking of the, like the, the borders around like the room, like you're going around, like looking at windowsills and being like, Oh yeah, wonderful. Or, or like the voltage of like the light <laughs> going around everywhere. And he's been talking about display cases. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, it's a display case on this one. Now, if you look at the display case here, you'll notice all sorts of lovely things going on. Like, don't yeah. you go agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then other people are like, hey, did you notice we're in a museum? There's art and stuff here. And then these other people look at them like, like, oh, look at these garbage people who let them into a museum looking at art and stuff. <laughs> How like, dare they? Exactly. How dare they defile this place of this holy place? And it's like, it's, that's exactly what it is. So like, it's like by the time you've like, you know, reached like your forties or whatever, and you, you, you spent your life at a library and you're reading a book on like Greek particles or something. You're like, what in the world have I been doing? Like I was mm. never going to get to like actual like stuff. We were never actually going to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the hoops you have to jump through, but it's a really high hoop and it's very small <laughs> so not many people can make it through no yeah or and yet it doesn't need to be though does it it doesn't nope. need to be that way not at all and then that barrier i mean darren and i found that a barrier we were white students um so that as you say in your in one of your edelon articles like that barrier is even harder for students of color because they don't, they are probably don't come from backgrounds that are as supportive of those education ventures. <laughs> no, it's 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 very true. I think it I think it it comes down to a lot of things, and I think, I mean, it's like the way Latin is taught has sort of created a reputation that has made it so that it's sort of it's self-selecting and kind of self-filtering. Mm-hmm. So it's on autopilot right now. So like, like I, when I was in school, like I'll, I'll just tell you about like my experience quickly about- Yes, about please do. How I decided not to take Latin is when I was in school, I was bottom of my class. I think actually, no, technically, technically I was second to bottom because the other young lady who was at the bottom actually got pregnant and left in the first week but they didn't take your name off the books. So I was technically second to last in my class. So that's something to be proud of. So I was a terrible student and I really, really, really struggled. And the last thing in the universe that I would have ever considered doing would be taking Latin. Why? Because Latin is for the kids, the quote unquote smart kids, but not even just the smart kids. It's the smart kids who know they're the smart kids, Mm want to be around the other smart kids, and they want to compete with the other smart kids. Like, at no point would I have had the audacity to put myself in that category and say, I belong in this elite of elite class with these people. And I promise you, I would have flunked out if I even tried it. I think it would have lasted a week, probably, and I would have gotten letters home urging me to, to drop out. And... I think that is the overwhelming experience, particularly for black students in any situation where you're able to choose Latin or another language, regardless of how many um, black students are in your school, 
almost none of them are going to choose Latin in a traditional setting. It happens. It happens, certainly. But the numbers are just appalling. Like it's 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 when you grow up black, none of the stereotypes about you or all of this that there goes that that bookish, studious black guy with no feelings, total bookworm. You know, those black guys like that's mm-hmm. never what's going on. So at no point are you are you typically growing up and thinking like, yeah, put me into the elite of the elite class with the other elite kids. And then we'll laugh at Latin jokes and go, ha, 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 ha. And then, and then win like the, like the, like the nerd Olympics or whatever it is. Like it's so far outside of the realm of possibility. And like, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to put into words how many like mental barriers are there are to actually even trying. And then the fact that they're also backed up by the actual lived experience of, of the people who do try. At some point, someone tried to take that Latin class. At some point, someone did. They went in and then they told everybody else what it was like. And then nobody else showed up again. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah. uh, One of the things that you mentioned in one of your Edelon articles, too, that I think that dovetails nicely into that idea is that the system has created it, created those conditions so that when those students do try they're the first ones that get torpedoed because they don't the the ones that instruct it don't want the numbers to come down just because there are a number of struggling students so they get cut they get shunted to the side so that the rest can get pushed through the door and if they were to keep those students it would be you know of course things would you know it, the you know this curve idea right like everything else would go down so in order to save the ship you know we're we're, we're you know pushing off we're we're pushing off these other students, and and I think that is part of the big tragedy too that is happening in many Latin and Greek classrooms right now, and will continue to be because it's a it's an old school traditional mentality that just happens almost on autopilot. Oh no, you're you're dead on. Like I've I've witnessed this happen over and over and over again. I've been part of departments where this was happening. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate not now, but I've, I've, I've seen all of these things happen and I've seen how violently people defend them as soon as they're challenged. Because yeah. if you are in a position where you've got a stable job, you've got seniority, and the numbers in your program don't determine your, your, you know, your job security because you can, you can withstand huge swings in how many kids sign up and how many don't. You have the power if no one, if you know, no one guides you otherwise or no one or no one insists that you do it another way, you have the power to create this perfect little world for yourself where you counsel out, flunk out, scare away all of the kids that you don't feel like teaching. And you can create a program that's only the kids who find success in your particular type of class. And then all your days are spent with the tiny classes with just the most privilege of the most privileged. But then again, throw in that one kid who's like the massive outlier. You got to have one token in there that makes you feel like you're making a difference. You got to have that kid in there. It's like, yeah, 10 years ago, I taught Jamal. Yeah, he did fine. Anyway, racism's over. 
<laughs> not have that kid in there, but then it's just all day. And then all these, all these wonderful kids are like, oh, you're the greatest teacher ever. I know. Oh, and other people are like, how are your AP scores so high? I have no idea. I guess I'm just a wonderful teacher, as opposed to the fact that you literally flunked out anybody who would have been otherwise. It's, it's like if I taught basketball class and the prerequisite to, to, to um, signing up for the class was you had to have at least three years of MBA experience, be over 6'10". It's like, yeah, so I'm going to look great because my kids are going to do awesome. But that's the whole thing. It's entirely, it's, it's a self-driven, completely ego-driven um, um, problem that, that we're having. It's not forced on people. It's very much, it's very much an ego thing. And yeah, it's, it's a fantasy. Fun. It's a fantasy land. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that really struck me with your article is just there's there's so many conversations. Um, if <laughs> if you have enough classes together for long enough, they will start talking about how nobody takes classics anymore. Yeah, yeah. And and um, you know the the subject is dying. The discipline is dying. And in reading your articles and and some of the other voices that I've also been hearing on Twitter and that kind of thing, it's like it seems the answer is so obvious that we need to dismantle this this entire system, this entire approach that favors privileged white students um, and diversify. Make it make it more accessible to to students from from every background. And you brought up some uh, um, examples as well that I remember I I was very fortunate to um, go to a high school that had high school Latin. And I remember reading the Cambridge Orange Readers about Caecilius. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever took those ones and Caecilius and his happy slaves. Oh, yeah, and, I know. Yeah, I know about those. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they were orange. Um, these little booklets. And that's something that, that you bring up as well, is that just having having recognition in our content of, of exploring these bigger questions rather than just this glib treatment that, oh, this, the Romans were great and they came and they made life great for everybody they conquered and all of their slaves were really happy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, like, so I, I think on its face, I think there's a, a lot of good work to be done there that, you know, this is, this is somewhat tricky. So yeah, one, one of the biggest yeah, one of the big issues is the way that teachers approach the materials that currently exist. There are issues with some materials and there are issues with teachers themselves who just will not examine these things further. So they'll come across something that seems like just totally glib. Like it's like, yeah, and then the Romans went to Gaul, kicked everybody's butt, they were thrilled, everything was awesome. And they came back and high-fived and everything was great. And so you might read that, but then it's also on the teacher as well to be like, okay, so let's look further here. What's not being mentioned here? Like what perspective are, are we taking here? And I think there's so much work around how you address those things in particular, like how you actually, you know, you know, just analyze what you're getting. And I think that there's, there are some people who are very well-intentioned and some people who aren't very well-intentioned who will focus like a laser on 
like little things, not we'll say little things, but like kind of superficial things where they'll be like, I don't know, like in like X textbook in like on like the page 450, it says like, I don't know, ancient buildings were, were sometimes multicolored. And then they'll be like ready to burn down the textbook company, cancel the entire field of classics and be like, how dare they use the word colored? And then when they talk to an actual black person, they'll be like, oh, no, we're talking about like different colored buildings. Like you can say that. They'll say, no, 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 no. We must burn the whole thing down. It's like, well, okay, white people, I appreciate your enthusiasm. But like, let's look at this from a different angle. No, no, just burn the whole thing down and everything and the world. And give me credit for it. Like that's mm-hmm. like I've I've seen so much of that to the point where it's like infuriating. But mm-hmm. like there's like actual real work to be done there with examining these things further. And there's a lot of people who don't because they don't want to. There's people who just have never experienced any of this stuff from a different angle, which is I think one of the hugest issues of having these is having such a homogenous field. Is that like if you're if if every moment you spent in a Latin class was with a bunch of was entirely just you and a bunch of really weird looking white guys just in like a dark room and like you just spent all of your time with these other weird looking white guys from like seventh grade on to like PhD, when you get out, you've got this one narrow, hyper focused perspective on things. And it's not your fault because, you know, individually, like it's not the student's fault. It's that they've never had anyone look at this from another angle. And then if and then people who want to go on in the field, there's that expectation that they're going to generate more of the same. There's like the whole tenure system, I would suggest, you know, doesn't really promote a lot of experimentation and out there ideas necessarily. And you get out what you put in. So if that's the situation, the output is, we can't just stand here and be shocked that that's the output, you know, considering what the input's been. Exactly. You know, people just don't don't have this come to Jesus moment where they just sort of realize that what they've been doing for their entire career has been metaphorically sticking their head in the sand and just, you know, um, ignoring everything and, and just sort of, you know, preaching to the converted. So I think I think got a handle on that. But, you know, is it going to, you know, are we going to be able to take that as a, as a, as a, as a moment in classics and, and unpack it, you know, beyond simply just the, the language instruction aspect of classics, which is, you know, at its heart, right? It's, it's soul to some degree. So if you can get in there and you can make those fundamental changes uh, at the foundation or at the core, then hopefully, maybe, those things will start to spread and, and and take root in other areas. You know, one of the challenges that John talked about in his article and that you had just mentioned here for us, Allison talked about it in her experience, was the idea that, you know, what, what do you do in the classroom? And I think briefly you touched on it with about how to use textbooks or how to use sources and how is it, you know, why do why why are we so shocked that students aren't eager some students of color particularly aren't eager to engage with the topic once they've kind of bravely stepped into this new world and they find out that all the textbooks and all the sources that they're going to be using don't have anything 
you know, to offer them. They don't display or report or record any of the experience or faces or people that they know. You know, gee, what a shock, right? That's classics right there in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's funny because that's really what got me into classics to start off with. That's what got me in there was was the lingering feeling that I was being conned. Yeah. Like, it's just like, just looking at the totality of it, it just, like, there's some things that just didn't add up. Right. Like, I mean, just, I mean, just, just, like, just off the top of my head, like, how is it that, like, according to, like, the stuff that I read in translation and from like, you know, ancient scholars or from like a modern scholars talking about the ancient world, how did they all seem to come to the conclusion that they're, that everyone in Africa is black, except if they found something that they personally liked about their civilization. Yeah. Then they are instantly not black. And not only are they not black, but it would require like, like proving the existence of ghost level, like extraordinary evidence for them to even consider that the, uh, that it could be anything different. Like, I remember, I remember the controversy around, well, vaguely, um, cause I was just starting getting into classics at the time, the controversy around the black Athena oh, yeah. book. And I understand, I have not personally read it, but I heard the controversy and just this, this, massive backlash against the very idea that Africa could have influenced ancient Greece. Yeah, there was, there was, I mean, that's one of the things that really drew me in. Like it was the, the backlash to it. It wasn't even like the addressing of the actual um, claim or even like, or even delving into like, just like the, the details of what's going on. It was the very visceral response to kind of how dare you. Mm. And I think that, I mean, what the conclusion that I've drawn from from following that fight very, very closely was that it, to me, it didn't seem like everyone was arguing in good faith. I think there were very intelligent people who were who got on the uh, on the you know let's pile on Black Athena train. I think were very accomplished, and I think you know think know what they're talking about to some extent, but who didn't even have like an like an elementary school project level understanding of race mm. like at all, like literally nothing like it could have read a pamphlet like it could have like it could have googled it on the way there like it could have been like hey 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 what's what what's race they could have asked somebody like like the the sheer lack of knowledge that that went into that like the sheer lack of information about race the history of race and any of those things like the fact that not only was it not there, it's that there wasn't even like, there wasn't even an interest and no sense of shame entering into a discussion about race with no working knowledge of it whatsoever. And I think that very much is like, is the field that were, that has been, were that been created in that like, we have left this mythological ancient world that was created over the past several hundred years to, you know, to promote certain um, political and economic policies. And 
what we have left is that. And the process of creating a more, you know, quote unquote, diverse ancient world isn't the process of going in there and saying like, all right, let's just pretend like everyone's black for like, for the sake of it, because it'll look good. Like, it's not that. It's recognizing that our current perception of the ancient world is sorely lacking in that regard. Like, we're wrong. That people had to consciously go in and remove people of color from it in order mm-hmm. to create what we currently have. So it's not a matter of soiling something or like, or just like, just, or just like throwing scholarship out the window because it's inconvenient or because it doesn't fit what you want it to be. To, to be. It's like, it's literally, it's, 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 this point is pretty irresponsible for us to just pretend like that didn't happen. And when given access to information where we actually could put all of these people back in that we took out, I mean, we, I mean, there's no excuse not to do it. Yeah. This do you is, think this, that? Go ahead. Go ahead, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just thinking back to <clears throat> to what we were saying about texts and 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 using text as kind of that that um, like to filter out and to and and to self select. Do you think that some of our in the field of classics, our ignorance, our um, desire perhaps not to see those things maybe comes because we're so focused on the texts that we have and that, you know, the people, you know, the Gauls, for example, um, I don't think they have any big texts, right? Um, I'm just wondering if there's a, if there's a connection there, if, if you think there's a connection. Um, I, I think there is, like, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of backwards planning from a, from my perspective, fairly arbitrary decision about what's worth reading and what isn't. Mm-hmm. That has, I think, very much narrowed the our perception of the field. I mean, particularly through institutions like the like the you know the College Board to the AP exam, and so there's like this very particular set of things you're supposed to read. It's like you're supposed to read um, and read in quotes um, Caesar. You're supposed to read Virgil. And those are the things you're supposed to be reading with a couple of other people sprinkled in. And everything is centered around just those few things. Now, I mean, it's understandable if you're reading about, you know, if you're reading about a civilization and reading stuff about written by people who are in that civilization, particularly one where pretty much nobody could read or write, like you're, you're going to by nature have like have a pretty narrow, you know, slice of things. When it comes to when it comes to to the perspectives you're going to get, but it's not so narrow that it literally just has to be Caesar and Virgil, and like I just think that there's this overwhelming acceptance that things are the way they are and are the way that they should be, and mm-hmm. instead of a, looking at that and saying you know what if we looked at something different, what if we looked at something that was more level appropriate, or what if we looked at something that was from a that was from whatever different perspective we can get that's in Latin. Like, like, why not open up that, that conversation? And I think there's a lot of people who are getting stuck there. And then I see people tying themselves in knots who are like, who are like in this weird place where they are like ultra, ultra, like, like 17th century, like Puritan conservative when it comes to the way that like you, that you teach 
where it's mm-hmm. like, like all grammar all the time. You must stick to the textbook. Anything outside the textbook is is blasphemy. Like you must grammar, textbook, memorization. That's it. But then they're like, but we need to address social justice and diversity. And so then like, so then what they'll do is they'll try to like shoehorn this stuff in without changing the way they teach or, or any of these things like that. So they'll be like, so we're still going to teach Caesar and Virgil and that's it. We're still going to do nothing but grammar stuff. But then we're going to do like a six month unit in English about like, about like slave torture or something. You're like, well, I think you're kind of missing the point here. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. how how women and slaves kind of get, um, or enslaved people rather, get treated as like one chapter out of like a you know a 300 400 page textbook and one mm-hmm. chapter on 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 women and one chapter on enslaved people and that's kind of it as though they're not part of the norm that was my undergraduate text <laughs> it's called history of the athenian empire i think it's i think it's still a lot of texts yeah, um, yeah unfortunately well that that whole idea like canonical text you don't find that in other fields where they say if you want to study this here's the list now, you know, you look back and like, you know, how did the canon ever get formed? It was formed, you know, hundreds of years before we ever decided that we were interested in classics. So somebody already fixed the rules long before we could ever, you know, step into the classroom in order to see what they were. And, uh, you know, you just don't really encounter that anywhere else. No, which is I, I think that is the if there was one phrase that could sum up the field of classics, it's you just don't encounter that anywhere else. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's 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 just amazing. It's it's in all of these in all of these ways. You just don't see this anywhere else. Like no. I, I like to, to just throw in an example. Um, like I, I used to get angry. I used to talk to this. Uh, there was a, a French guy who I was in uh, in grad school with, and we would like you know when we we're feeling frustrated. Not that I didn't love grad school. I did. But if we're feeling kind of frustrated, like we just kind of go off on these things and we'd be like, like, why is it that when I take like an upper level Latin class, I'm like talking about like passive paraphrastics and stuff and like all this other stuff and completely ignoring what's actually been written. Like if I took like if I took like a like a like a graduate course in French, like I don't think I'd be sitting there talking about like like purpose clauses and stuff like that in English and then just ignoring whatever it is that we were reading in French. Like it's, it's, this stuff doesn't happen in other places. And I think that there's, I think a lot of white classics has the problem that it does is this very elitist attitude that whatever we do must be better because we're doing it. And to look outside of ourselves is to taint the field with garbage ideas garbage yeah the dissonant voices that will destroy the the you know iconoclastic idea right exactly yeah we can't have yeah. that yeah that's not. that's something that surprised me um i did my first degree um in history and 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 i did a fair bit of french as well and coming into a classics classroom, I'm like, oh, we're going to read this. This is going to be so exciting. We're going to, you know, thinking that we're going to read it in the original language and we're going to talk about it and, you know, get into the content of what it's actually saying. And I didn't, I didn't have a class like that until grad school um, where I had a professor who it wasn't just about translating it, but she wanted us to dig into what was being said. 
Yeah. And that's a long way to go. That's a lot of commitment to get to get to grad school to to, to be able to do that. Oh God, it is it is so few people can or want to put themselves through that. That like it's it's the amount that you have to do to get to the point where you can talk about something that you read. I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, one of the things about comprehensible input as an approach that is really refreshing is that it, it is based on the concept of proficiency and that like the point of, of language is communication, period. That's the point. We have language so that we can communicate ideas. The people who wrote the things that were, that were slaving over, um, they wrote to communicate ideas. It seems like the focus would be on the ideas, the things that they are communicating, not why they used it freaking like imperfect subjunctive or pluperfect subjunctive. I don't even think they know what those words meant. And they probably punch us in the face if we ask them a question about that. It's like, I spent my life writing this work of art and you're asking me about the like, why I use like instead of net. Like, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you? But that's like, literally, like you have to, like you have to endure this impossible gauntlet of all of that just meaningless crap. Just to get to the point where you can raise your hand and ask a question in class and be like, hey, hey. Yeah. That yeah. reminds me. That reminds me. I never met a classics grad student that didn't want to punch Cicero in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's great that there are people who thrive on languages and their brain works the right way and, you know, they do it. But one of the things that I have always struggled with um, in classics is – if I'm not looking to become a translator, do I, like, why do I need to translate at the level of somebody who's looking to become a translator? I think that's, that's, that's a place that I've always struggled. Oh, I think, I think that's where we lose 90 something percent of the, of the people who would otherwise be interested. It's like, if you're talking about the university level, I mean, the thing that is, that should be the biggest, you know, like wake up call should be like the fact that like, if you, if you have like a Greek or like like a Greek or Roman mythology class, like an intro level class at university, that class is like, like you have to fight to get into that class. Like there'll be like hundreds of people with like a hundred people on the wait list, people standing in the aisles, everybody's trying to get into that class. But mm -hmm. then you have Latin class across the hallway and maybe year one has like 25 kids before they figure out what it is. And then year two has like three. And then it's like, it's like, and, and you're fighting to get enough people to run the class. Exactly. Like, it's just, it's, it just, it, it tells you so much the, the, it tells you so much one of the massive mistakes that we're making is we're just ignoring students and we're just running the same, like, we're just running like the same, like, it's like this dusty old VHS tape that we're just running on, on repeat. And, hoping that someone will come up and want to watch it and getting mad at the people who don't and then saying, well, those people aren't worth it anyway. Me and this weird guy are going to watch this VHS tape. Like, and that, and that's, that's the whole field. Well, I, that, I, I agree. I just wanted to say too, though, like John, like if the status quo, like you said, is no longer an option, then how are we going to get serious about creating more inclusive programs, not only for students of color, but uh, for the whole discipline as well? Like, what do you see as the sort of next couple of steps into a kind of a 
familiar but more sort of sensitive kind of classics environment? Boom. It's actually the answer is so much simpler than I think people think it is. We spend so much time going into like these deep philosophical kind of internal explorations of how it is that we get to this place where honestly, you always start with step one when it comes to anything, anything you're trying to do, always start with the first step. Is there somebody somewhere who has achieved what it is that you are trying to achieve? That's where you start. When I changed the way that I was teaching, I changed because I got to a point where I identified a problem. All of the me's in the program, I was flunking out. I was creating as inequitable of a program as you could possibly have, and it was, it was, and I, I couldn't stand it. So I looked to see who was actually doing what it is that I thought needed to be done. Who had massive programs that had massive numbers of kids from a whole variety of things? Whose Latin program looked like a Spanish program? That's, or in Canada, like a French program where like you, you see everybody there. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started. And that's how I ended up with comprehensible input. The point was that it was a social justice endeavor. The point was to create a more equitable classroom. If anyone is serious at all about this problem and not just blowing hot air and not just trying to make themselves look cool, you have to start at the very beginning, which is how we teach those languages. We have to create programs that are as accessible as a Spanish program is or as a French program is in Canada. They have to work for everyone. Everyone has to be able to sign up. Everyone has to be able to make it through. And you should not need to have like a like a Rain Man style brain to be able to get to like year three. If we do that, then the field will transform into what we want. Then there will be classicists of color because we would have had classic students of color. The entire field has to get huge. And the way that we do that to begin with is to change the way that we teach. The other issues are important too. It's important to look at that inclusivity. There should not be like, like the, the study of women in the ancient world shouldn't be like the woman chapter. <laughs> like, it's like, we change those things too. Of course we change those things. The people who we're trying to impact with those things are never gonna set foot in the classroom if we don't change the way that we teach. That's where we start. And if we don't do that, I think we're done. Yeah, those first year courses, the the introduction to Latin, the introduction to myth, the introduction to um, quote unquote civilization um, are those are the courses that we need to catch students at. Um, here in Ontario, there's not a lot of high schools that offer Latin. So I know in 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 our classrooms, what what Darren and I see, um, you know, in our first year myth class, are students who or they're maybe there because they need an elective credit. Like they have no background, they have no concept. And those first year classrooms are so important to hook people in. And and I think that um, in some ways the size I think sometimes works <laughs> works against those those courses. Um, but sometimes it's a benefit too. Yeah, I've sorry, lost my train of thought. I forget exactly where where I was going with that, but just um yeah, that if that that if we pay attention to the to the diversity in those courses, 
that's a really good place to start. I mean, it needs to go all the way through, but if students first interaction with a subject is something that they can't see themselves in or that doesn't feel like it's for them, they're not going to yeah, take another course. It's like a paradigm shift, you know, like it's from the general to the specific. If the first easy baby step is like John says, you know, just, you know, analyzing your pedagogy and saying, you know, just what am I doing here? What, you know, how am I teaching this? I can't expect a thing to change if I don't change the way that I teach this thing. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way it's going to work. And and I just wish to like it's it's odd, too, because as a mythologist, in a way, you know, mythology in itself is sort of the enemy of orthodoxy. And we're talking about orthodox behavior in classics and we're talking about entrenched ideas and a, elitism and a, and, a, and a culture of, of, you know, I don't know what you would call it, white supremacy, for lack of a better term. And um, this this you know, butting our heads up against this and how to think about reform and so on. You know, but it, and then the idea behind myth is that it that there is no canonical, there is no orthodox, you know, that it is amorphous and subject to change, right? So if you are serious about myth, you should be the first type of person to be sensitive to, you know, adaptations in pedagogy, to social justice, to an inclusive and diverse classroom, but yet somehow between that idea and the reality, there's a disconnect, right? And that's what we've been talking about now. No, and, and I think the, and I think you get into something pretty huge there is part of the issue is that the, the kind of thinking, the kind of mind, the kind of personality that is very much rewarded in a traditional classics program and a traditional Latin program is someone who is, is oftentimes rigid, likes to think of things in, in terms of yes or no, like black and white. It's, this is the correct form. This is the incorrect form. My grade depends on getting the correct form and not using the incorrect form. Everything about it is about, about sort of rigidly viewing things as right and or wrong. So the language itself, the, what is communicating is almost irrelevant. It's just, is it right? or is it wrong? And anyone who was willing to endure that, I mean, there, there, of course, there, there's outliers, like, of course, but in general, you're going to get a field of people who have been selected for their ability to um, largely not question and to look at even like the, the most human of humanities, even something like mythology, and look at it as a matter of like, of like, Instead of looking at like, you know, a story about Cupid and his bow and what it means and, and what it's communicating, instead it's just like Cupid drew his bow. But no, actually, it's it's with Cupid's bow having been drawn. On the one hand, on the other hand. Here are my glasses. Now put them on and see what I see. And if you don't see what I see, then shut up and sit down. Exactly. Sit down, shut up, and, and ideally get out. Yeah. That's, 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 I think it's that kind of personality that is selected for in our current thing. It's very much like a status quo enforcing uh, kind of thing. And the only way we change that is, as you've alluded to before, is that we have to change the actual way that we teach so it works for more kids 
than simply just that exact same person plus like you know the occasional token i can i can i can plop into like my my like hack essay on like social justice and why like it's like yeah i taught nothing but grammar out of we lock for my entire career but jamal don't forget about jamal here's a picture of me pointing to jamal <laughs> here's me waving at jamal did i mention jamal like that's that's still racism, racism, yeah. and you said racism is over can we move on yeah Rip, done yeah got it I've I've been thinking through through these tweets and and um, the coverage of of Black Lives Matters and thinking about what this means for me in the classroom and Darren and I as teaching assistants we don't get to decide curriculum. Yep, yep. Um, a professor may ask us what we think, but we're just there to kind of um, roll out something that that is more or less preset. Um, but I have been thinking about how even just within that position of, of limited power, that there is still some power um, for us in the classroom in the moment to make sure that our classrooms are more welcoming places and fostering supportive conversations and maybe pointing out problematic parts of text and that kind of thing as well like yeah well <laughs> if anyone should be able to have those types of conversations i would think maybe it should be a well-informed classicist because we deal with some pretty crazy stuff with some pretty crazy different types of themes and contents and you know we're talking about you know at times fairly you know despicable sorts of human behaviors or divine or heroic behaviors and and if we're going to have a safe place in order to talk about literature or to talk about mythology or to talk about you know what we're reading in the primary sources and how we are reading it and how what we think it means you know you'd think that maybe this would be the place to do it but and then there's three dots right but but, but who knows that that that, that it, it, it depends so much on what and what you're able to do and yeah. what you're expected to do right and that's that's yeah. And that's a real challenge, not just for you, for you all, but it's also a problem at like, uh, it can be a problem at the K through 12 level uh, when you are, say you have an administrator who is, who has a way of doing things and is not thrilled with people deviating from it. Or you might have colleagues who are, who are very rigid in the way they'd like things to be done. And if things have not been done the way that they expect them to be done, you could find yourself in hot water. You could find yourself with like in professional jeopardy. Like there's 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 pressures, right? Like that that will that will prevent us from doing all the things that we want to do. But you're right that we should use whatever it is that we have, whatever it is that we're able to do, to be able to engage these conversations, to be able to open up about them. Like there's no reason to to hide it. And yeah, I mean there, there, there's no reason to hide from it. I mean, everything that we do is where it's, it's a humanity. We're supposed to be studying, you know, human beings, how they lived, what we can learn from them, what we can avoid, whatever have you. Like that's, I mean, I think that's, again, one of the biggest issues with the field of classics is that it's supposed to be a humanity, but instead it becomes this weird sort of like, like it should be in the math department or like in the, it's just like analyzing chunks of words with no heed to what they say. 
But I think that regardless of that, I mean, because that, because honestly, what I would recommend, like, honestly, like, because that approach doesn't work, like the grammar translation approach doesn't work. Like you can take like huge amounts of time to have these conversations in English or whatever, whatnot. It's doing about as much in, uh, in the area of, of leading to acquiring Latin as grammar translation does. Like it, it, it doesn't do anything. It's like, it's like slapping myself in the, in the face over and over again and expecting to get six pack abs. Like it just, it's just, just totally unrelated things. So I wouldn't feel bad at all. It's like, it's like, you know, you read something lame for class or whatever that you have to do and then stopping and being like, all right, let's talk about this. So now that we're in the woman chapter or we're in like the, uh, or we're in the Africa chapter where there's no black people, let's, let's have ourselves a, a conversation about, about, about human life, like the value of human life. Like it like, was the life of a slave considered to be, to be less or more valuable than the life of someone who wasn't a slave. What about someone who used to be a slave? Like all of these conversations are real and totally valid and should be occurring in, con in conjunction with um, changing the way that we teach so that those kids are actually in the room to be able to provide those perspectives to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Because like one of the things that resonates uh, with me, what you're saying there, John, is that often, you know, uh, we bemoan the fact that students aren't able to sometimes, sometimes, you know, um, engage with a, a piece of literature to interpret it in a critical or literary sense and provide their own opinion based on their own experience. And then you step back from it for a second and you say, well, it's because they, they don't, they haven't experienced this yet or they haven't experienced enough of it yet. But then now when we turn to students of color or we look at, you know, intersectional individuals and ask them, about how they feel about this particularly challenging piece of text. What it, where do they stand on it? What direction or perspective are they approaching it from? Well, those are the most fascinating conversations that you're ever going to have, but we're never going to get to have them unless we have those people in our classrooms and our lecture halls in the first place. And that those people feel safe, right? That, that, that we create an environment that allows people to raise differing perspectives oh if i if i could throw in a a perfect example of, of this that you just that you both just reminded me of is one of the best educational experiences i had uh, growing up was uh, at community college at a, at a little place called uh, greenfield community college like i got lucky and got into a program because i was flunking out of school where they took some kids who were flunking out and tried this experiment where they put them in community college and see how they do. And it turned out we actually did pretty well. But the thing that stood out to me and why it was such a valuable experience is that community college is for anybody in the community. Like it's for like, it's like when I took like an intro to psychology course, it was like me, like a biker, a single mom, dude who just got out of jail, guy I knew from like middle school. And it was like this, like, you know, fundamentalist Christian guy like like drummer for like a weird heavy metal band like it was like this this totally like this just like this strange cross-section of people a variety of, of not just ages but like of, of so many different backgrounds with so many different experiences in terms of social class and all these other things so like it's every time someone raised their hand you learn something new because like everybody had all of these different perspectives like the 
goal as I see it, and I've heard, I have friends of mine who put it the same way, who are doing the same thing, is we want to make Latin class community college. We want to make Latin class the bus. Everybody can get on that bus. And if we get everybody on that bus, we hear all of these different perspectives and ones that I don't have that I can get from my students, like that they get from each other. That's what we're trying, that's what we need to be trying to do as opposed to just keeping everything exactly the same and then just having those same white people screaming at each other over like word use and like with no black people to chime in. Like it's like, it's, it's and that's what I see a lot of right now, which is just like, just scary. <laughs> And there's yeah. that idea sometimes that we just have to wait for the wrong people, or you know, certain people to retire, right? And, and yeah. we don't. I don't think we have that lu that luxury. I don't think we ever no. should have had thought of having that luxury. But how many students? How much? Um, how many contributions to the field do we miss out just by simply waiting around, rather for somebody to leave, rather than addressing issues directly? Oh yeah, and those people and and. To make that even darker is when that person retires, particularly at the university level, who's to say that they're going to hire somebody else for that job? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have yeah, a program that no one's signing up for and you've got some tenured professor from the 70s who's still there, when that person goes, you're like, all right, thank goodness. Now I can hire 700,000 like, assistant professors like to teach yeah. something else and like and this also happens at K through 12 too, like where people are waiting for like these ultra traditional conservative rigid teachers to, to retire. But what happens is that, and I've seen this over and over again, is that when that teacher is that ultra hyper traditionalist, they shrink the program down to like this, to like this just big enough for them to survive but mm. very, very difficult to bring on another teacher or to even justify the existence of the program. So when that person retires, you're like, I mean, are we going to pay somebody a full salary to teach like, you know, like 20 kids when like a Spanish teacher is teaching like 150 and is like getting the same, the same pay, like, I mean, that, that's yeah. kind, of where, kind of where we're at. We can't, we can't wait. We, we don't have time and there's no guarantee that letting that person retire is going to do anything. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. I think it's um, going to take a lot of work on the part of white people um, examining our own privilege and how that works and how that plays out in these academic spaces and really doing personal work to, and putting in the effort um, to read, like there's tons of stuff out there um, and to really understand and try to implement that. I think it really needs, like there's a lot of internal work, I think, that um, that we need to do before we can um, sometimes even do it with a class. Well, and, and also too, not being afraid to throw a few rocks, you know, like change starts with yourself, yes, but at the same time, if you just don't, you know, if you just sit idly by and you don't point out the actions of others, then you're complicit in just the self-perpetuating mind game yeah and i and 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 i didn't mean that in the sense that you know change and be perfect and then go <laughs> but yeah. change and bring other people with you as you as you change yeah. so yeah. i think something really important about that too that i that i, I really want to stress to anyone who's listening that like when you're engaging in this kind of work 
it's very important to follow the lead of people who appear to be achieving what it is that you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Very important to do so. And it's also, it's okay to like run stuff by people of color. Like it's okay like to ask us stuff. Like, like the... Like the amount of time that I've just seen people just like I've just seen white people just rip each other to shreds and like and like just over this stuff where like some people are trying to do the right thing and other people are just trying to make a name for themselves and they will just rip each other to pieces then instead of doing like the actual like work of trying to like, you know, figure this stuff out and what to do. And in my experience, even I as one of like the few black classicist period like one of like i can probably name off the top of my head all of the black latin teachers in the country like i can name them all and no one's listening to us in that in a lot of those conversations so they'll be on their own thing they'll set their own priorities their own goals of what they think social justice is and what it's not and then when if they do ask us which they normally don't they usually ignore what it is that we have to say about it so I think it's very important that it become like actual allyship and actual like curiosity and not just like a vanity project. Like it's important to like to listen more so than anything else. Listen and work that way. What's going to make that difference? Yeah, I've heard it described as as being accomplices, right? Like it's it's following the lead of black activists, of people working in this field already. Uh, but at the same time, not expecting black scholars to fix it all themselves. Yeah, exactly. You're you're there to help. I mean, it's like you're 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 there. You're there to help. You're there to get in trouble too, and you're there to do things that honestly that you don't want to do. And I see a lot of people who do the like who cannot wait to jump on Twitter, cannot wait to release that next article about all the stuff that they personally want to do and to prove how, you know, how anti-racist they are. And they'll go on about these various things. And it's, it's just all about that. And none of it has to do with any of the things that they don't want to do. So on, on any side of it. So they'll decide like they want to go all in on a textbook, but are all out when it comes to changing anything about the way that they teach or they'll decide mm. something random is racist and they'll be like hey that's the one thing that's not actually racist you found it and they're like nope don't care and they just plow through like it's like if you're an accomplice like you're joining us and you're with us in this whole thing you shouldn't be like on your own like fighting the people you're supposed to be on the side of like the, at no point if i started a group for 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 women in classics and it was all dudes, and I didn't listen to any women who, like, who had anything to say about it and said, nope, this is my crusade, I'm doing this, then, then I'm not actually an ally, I'm probably just a self-serving narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very, so the work isn't as hard as it looks. We're here to help you. If you're trying, we're with you. No black person's gonna cancel you because like, because like you forgot to capitalize black, like no one cares. <laughs> we're gonna mess up, and yeah. and we're not. And you know, just just like with those grammar lessons, we're not comfortable messing up. We want to sometimes we just want to get it right, but it's gonna be messy and awkward at times. But oh, we just need to keep time. trying. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I don't know if you had anything um, further maybe that you wanted to add or if we've covered everything. Oh, is that for me? Oh, yeah. Sorry, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I think it pretty much hit the main points. But yeah, just we're I'm, I'm on your side in this. If you want to make a difference, the first step is in the classroom. The first step is how you teach. And I'm always around if you need any help with that. Awesome. It has I'm I'm so glad that we have that we have connected and I, I look forward to more exchanges. Um I, I just want to thank you, John, um, in case I don't get, get to, to see you before we um, sign off. Um it, I, I learned a lot and I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And uh like Allison was saying, you know, you're just a Twitter DM away. So we'll make sure when we do our are closing a little bit to include our Twitter uh, handles as we uh, fade to black. Yes. Likewise. Yes. Pleasure is all mine. <laughs> thank you very much, John. It has been a real pleasure to have you on Myth Take. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Myth Take. Uh, fresh take on ancient myth. I am Allison Innes. You can find me on Twitter at Innes Allison. You can also find uh, the podcast on Twitter where we tweet about classical things in general at Myth Take Podcast. And I am Darren Sundstrom and you can find me on Twitter at, at Darren Sundstrom. And we also have the podcast uh, website, mythtake.blog.